Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Dual Access Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Kriebel, and today I've got a very special guest with me, Rob Gibbons. He is currently the Chief Commercial Officer at Acutus Technologies. But before we talk about that and all of his vast sales experience, we have to jump right into the fun stuff, and that's basketball. So uh-huh. Rob is an absolute giant, and <laughs> he's actually the first professional athlete I've ever interviewed. So. Yeah. Rough. Well, you're still a professional athlete. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. So you can still tell people you're a professional athlete. You yeah, you still get yeah. paid to be an athlete now. That's right. Yeah, um, no, I don't. I don't. You have anywhere. to make your own money now. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, I just have. I have to start with that. So, you know, first off, how tall are you? Uh, six foot ten. Six. Holy crap! I didn't realize you were six ten. So you're an absolute giant. Uh, yeah, in some in some capacity, yeah. If I'm you're on a, shot, a lot shorter than the guy that's on the Mavericks. The uh, what's what's his name? I can't oh yeah, no, he's yeah. on the Spurs. Me on the Spurs. Oh, yeah. Spurs, yeah, yeah. And he plays he's like seven. a point. And he plays he's like a point guard. He's seven for four. Yeah, he's yeah. A, he's a big guy. Yeah. Could you ever dribble like him? Yeah, I could dribble pretty well. Actually, yeah. yeah. In college and in, in the pros, I played. I was a power forward, so I had. To. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so you had to be able to dribble. But you know, traditionally, I think of the NBA center yeah, right. and the college centers as just these big loafs that stand in the middle yeah. and, and don't do a whole lot. But the game's changed a lot. Yeah, I was but just going to say the game has dramatically changed because now what you're seeing, and it's interesting because he's kind of the epitome of it now, right? But the big men of today aren't like the big men when when we were watching the game. You know, no, the, no, not at all. Jacks, the Patrick Ewings, the Carmelones. Yeah, yeah. That, Read a basketball players is, is you don't see it as much anymore. Back yeah. to the basket, as we call yeah. it in the game. And that kind of started with Kevin Durant, I would think. He was Actually, one of the first big men that you know really yeah. made it made it more obvious, I guess. Well, it's funny, Kevin Durant, but also it was really ushered in. If you want to go back, if you're a basketball nerd, you want to go back. The person who really introduced that to the league was Phil Jackson, because if you remember when Mike was yeah. playing, scouting those guys, there were a lot of times, even though they had Wennington and Cartwright and those guys, a lot of times on the floor, they were playing with four forwards and a guard. Because keep yeah. in mind, Mike ran the two or the three. Scotty, he, they're both six, seven. So yeah. that kind of went. But the real introduction was when the European Pro League started to get so good. And then, if you remember, before Durant, it was a guy named Dirk Nowitzki. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about Dirk. Yeah, yeah. I, I stood next to Dirk. Dirk's taller than me. And Dirk, Dirk can play like a guard. Yeah. Like a guard. And he came from Europe. Yeah. Yeah, and he came from Germany. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So and then, since then... The, the game is really focused on um, more skill positions and such yeah. like that, where nowadays, if you're a big man, and I know this because of my kids and my friends' kids, you're a big man. If you can't handle and if you can't shoot, you're kind of you're kind of in a starting from a, a tougher spot than most. Oh, that, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, what was your free throw percentage? What's your career th- free throw percentage? Uh, in, col- in college, it was low to mid 80s. Uh, but then usually I was I hovered around there in the pros. It was better because. I, I made it more of a point to get better at it. You know, I was good at it in college. Um, I would have liked to have been better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I would say mid, mid to low eighties in college. I, I mean, I know, I know that's that's a really good percentage, but it still seems like you know this is a free throw. You're ten feet away. Yeah. Why are players not like? Why isn't everybody like Steph Curry when they when they shoot? Yeah. No, it's a good point because a lot of it has to do. I'll be honest with you. A lot of it has to do with mechanics and confidence. Yeah. Because the best shooters, if you watch Steph Curry, for instance, watch him in a game. They do the exact same things every time they shoot that foul shot, right? It's yeah. just muscle memory. And also, it, don't get me wrong, it's like a lot of things. It's tons of practice. Yeah. And early on, early on, if you don't have somebody correct your form or your your, your mechanics, you can get into some really bad habits that are really hard to break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I agree with you. What's frustrating me, it's funny you say that, because now with my sons, my sons all play, and when we watch college games, big-time college games, even pro games, it nauseates me when I see guys go the line and – not only do they miss, they miss bad. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so that, that part to me is mind boggling. It's yeah. I mean, you see some of them that are better three point shooters than they are free throw shooters. Oh, it's like, how is that get possible? You know, you get on Shaquille O'Neal because he's such a bad free throw shooter. But if you know Shaquille O'Neal, have you ever really read this? Um, he shattered his wrist when he was very, very young, like smashed, yeah. like smashed. And he can only, his right wrist, he can only bend back so far. So when yeah. you're in a free throw, you need that's that. That's why he pushes it, I guess, right? Yeah. He's almost throwing it. And yeah. I, I try to equate this because I met him and I watched him do this. It's like you and I trying to throw a baseball or a golf ball through the hoop, right? Right. You know, really, the form you can't really use. You've got to be like a dart. <laughs> right. 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 Interesting. Yeah. So, but you know, he he really improved his percentage when he started shooting underhanded. Yeah. Well, I mean that that still never so, caught on enough. You know what I mean? But but 
uh, when you look at physics studies of basketball, that's by far the best way to shoot a free throw. Like Pistol Pete sure. shoot, they shot that way. Well, he was like ninety nine percent free throw shooter. Well, Something and George like Mikan. George Mikan was one of the few big men to really revolutionize the game, and, and for a while he did the same. He shot underhand. So why do you think players don't do it? Because they're going to get made fun of. That could be a very key reason. Nowadays, yeah. so many, so many of us are so vain. God forbid you shoot a free throw underhanded. You know, I mean, it, it wouldn't be something. Because nowadays, especially the way information and media travels, people will get destroyed. You know, and, and uh, TikTok and whatever they use nowadays, you show someone shoot an underhanded free throw. But the truth be told, with if you look at guys like you had brought up earlier, and it's a great example. When Steph Curry first came to the league, he wasn't Steph Curry that he is now. No, not even close. Most people don't know where he went to college. He went to a small yeah. college, liberal arts Davidson, college. Right? Went to Davidson. Yeah. Now, to his credit, to his credit, prior to that, in and around that area, people knew him. But on the national scene, nobody really knew him. Yeah. But he had a great, he had a great NCAA tournament. Yeah. Was, he turned heads. But then, to his credit, when he got to the league, he got the right shooting coach. He got the right trainers, and yeah. he's and, and now it's just a matter of discipline, doing, doing, doing. But so many guys. I'll give you another example. Look at Kevin Durant. Well, Kevin yeah. Durant was at, you know where Kevin Durant went to college? No. Most people don't. He went to Texas. Okay. And he I didn't really think of Texas having a, even having a half decent basketball team. Exactly. But when he gets to the league, a friend of mine, actually, a guy that I worked with uh, who's now moved back to the area, he's been Kevin Durant's shooting coach for like the last seven years. His name's Adam Harrington. And just think of that. He's had a shooting coach for the last seven years. You know, all these guys that are big time, when they make that transition to see that they can go from good to really great and lasting power. They have trainers, they have shooting coaches, all these yeah. things. And the yeah. very first thing they do is listen, you've got to work on the mechanics. Yeah. Because yeah. you don't have the foundation. It's all it's an all, it's an uphill battle from that. Yeah. Well, and, and I guess some players probably think, well, you know, is that should I really be spending that money on something like that? Right. They don't think about the long-term value of yeah. you know, so the money that Durant and um and Steph Curry have invested in these specialized coaches. Yeah. That's peanuts, you know, because they would have never gotten the contracts they got, right? And, right? and the endorsement deals, all this stuff that goes along with it, they would have never gotten any of that if it wasn't for these right. for these coaches. Yeah, that's right. They wouldn't. They would. The coaches and the discipline. I will say that because they are. You have to have just gut wrenching. No matter what, you have to do something yeah. Yeah. all the time. But to their credit, the NBA, as poorly as I think it's run it, and on some some instances, what it does do a good job of, and what it, the last couple of years it's really highlighted is those players who come in at one level. They, they fortify themselves, they build that foundation, and they get better and better. Another yeah. great example, another great example in my house, we uh, my, my wife is Greek. My kids are half Greek, so we love Giannis. You look yeah. at pictures of when Giannis first came into the league. It's like Steph Curry. He wasn't really knowable. He didn't really do much, but he got better and better every single year. Yeah. And now he's yeah. one of the most, probably one of the top five players in the game right now. Yeah, yeah. And don't get me wrong. There's also those guys, Andy, that we all know that had all the talent in the world to get to the league, and you're like, what the hell happened? So, yeah, it, it, uh, too many, too many of those. Yeah, and that still happens. Yeah, right. Too, too high of a clip. Yeah. So, so uh, what what's been the biggest change in basketball since you played? Uh great question. I think that I think it's been the, I don't want to say the uh, the systematic eradication of the big man. Back to the basket, big man. Now that said, I do have hope on the horizon because uh, <laughs> I'm very fortunate. I played for a gentleman in Jersey named Bobby Hurley. He taught me how to play the game. Yeah. I didn't go. To, I didn't go to St. Anthony's, but Everything else he taught me how to do, and he helped me get in college. And I was—I had a wonderful college coach. But back when I played in the early in the late '90s, early 2000s, it was still big man forwards, guard stuff. And if you look at UConn now, UConn won the national championship last year, and they have that mentality. They have big men. They have a seven-footer. Uh, they have big banger guys. Mm. That's—I hope—coming back. But it's funny because in the NBA and in college, you see too much of this three-man weave up top with guards, and then it's all about slashing and. Unfortunately, I shouldn't say unfortunately because basketball enthusiasts will tell you, but it's a scoring race. You know, you look at you look at some of the scores of these NBA games. You're wondering if did anybody show up to play defense at all? It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the average score. I think of the Golden State games. It was one ten. They're averaging. I mean, that's insane. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's that's it, that's pretty interesting. The you know the offenses, I guess, are. They, they they steal ideas off of everybody else that's doing it, oh, right? Sure. So, you know, they're all running the triangle offense now because it worked for the Bulls, but you still yeah. have to have the players to execute it. That's and one of, the other, one of the other really interesting things is this is where data comes into basketball. 100%. Um, it's become a bigger and bigger part of basketball, um, yep. especially the way teams run and the way players play is oh, – yeah. The medium, the middle, the medium range jump shot doesn't exist anymore, more or less, right? It's right. it's 
it's worth the risk to take a three-pointer. So yeah. if you look at the number of three-pointers taken, really it kind of follows along with Steph Curry's career. Yeah, and it's got, um, to your point, it's skyrocketing. You could say yeah. you set a watch to it by um, Steph, Kevin Durant, those guys that are just, you know, even Clay Thompson, I don't know if you watch form-wise, Clay Thompson's yeah. an unbelievable shooter. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because, you know, you bring up data into it, right? And I'm quiet. I think we're both data nerds, right? Data has changed the game significantly, but not just in basketball. Yeah. So I have, a, I have a thing now that when I was fortunate enough to work with this one guy, he's my head of sales operations. It's called WAGS. Um, he was also a math whiz. And I read the book Moneyball by Michael Lewis. Yeah. And I came into WAGS and I said, hey, can you Moneyball the sales force with me? And it was interesting because we just, instead of looking at certain KPIs with our sales team, we extended it and drew it out. And sure enough, it was literally night and day, the results we got. So when you think about it, the guy that did it, uh, Billy Bean did it for Oakland. Yeah. That concept, the, the Red Sox won the World Series two years later by doing that exact yeah. concept, you know. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. And, and basketball is is falling victim that NFL is the same way. Yeah. Uh, business is the exact same way, you know, that kind of thing where let's look at the data and see what's having the highest impact. Because, you listen, as, as early as I started playing, the worst shot in basketball is your foot on a three-point line. Right. You know, that's always yeah. stated. Yeah. But the matter is now, if you get X amount of attempts, you'd rather have X amount of attempts from the three-point line than you would the two-point line because if they're even, we're going to win on, on, yeah. the front, on the former side. Yeah. But yeah, I, I agree. Data has taken over, uh, not taken over, but it's played a, a significant role. Look at, there's also times though when it plays too much of a role because personally, you know, I'll give you a, something that bothers me that I had a discussion about recently. Have you heard about these players' load management? Have you heard that down in the NBA? Well, you hear of it. In, you hear of it in soccer a lot. Yeah, where you, oh, know, okay. you can only play so many minutes. You know, oh, right. and you see it in baseball now with pitchers. You know, they pitchers, throw right. like 50 yeah. pitches. When I played baseball, if I, I used to throw 200 in a game. Exactly. You know? and, but the thing that frustrates me about the NBA is that I played with a couple of the old, big time old NBA guys. I was fortunate. I was on a team with Magic Johnson in Sweden for a while. I played around guys in Jersey that, you know, had been to the league and came back to work out. And I, I see it from a fan's perspective, I guess, right? Because think about this. I grew up just outside New York City. And still to this day, I, I think that the New York Knicks might be the most expensive ticket in the NBA. So what happened in the NBA is they eradicated majority of their blue-collar fan base years ago, right? Yeah. The problem is now with load management, you play an 82-game season, okay? And now there's so many different ways to take care of your body. There's so much technology, science. They all fly private. Keep back in the day when Larry and Magic and Mike were doing it, they were still flying commercial to a good yeah. extent. Yeah. And nowadays, think about it. If you and your kids are going to a game in New York City, you spend all this money to go see this guy play, only to find out that he's now not playing tonight because he wants to save himself up for two months down or a month down the line. Right. It kind of, I don't know, it's not like the season added games. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you have more of an argument to do that in the NFL because, let's face it, you need a week to recover. My God, it's like yeah. a truck, right? And anytime they add a game, I'm like, oh, my God, because I've seen guys suffer from CTE and all that. But, like, in the NBA, I just have an issue with that. You know what I mean? It's yeah. the greatest – from a basketball perspective, it's, it's the mecca. It's the greatest job in the world. You get to play – you're paid handsomely to, to do something that you absolutely love. Nowadays, the guy, even the furthest guy on the bench who never sees the court, he's making millions. You know what yeah. I mean? So it's yeah. like – yeah. When I when I hear about that, I'm like, all right, is there is there a level of something that's on a bigger scale? You know, the aesthetics of it to where it just doesn't show right because people fight to get those tickets. These kids boost up to see you. You're you're a hero to a lot of those kids, and they yeah. just yeah. found out that you're on the bench in a suit because uh, you just you want to save up your energy. To me, it's yeah. like part of the job is you're supposed to take care of your body. You're supposed to spend yeah. that money with the best trainers. You know, yeah. So I, I I have an issue with that. I think data. I think data may have played a role in that. But quiet, you know, quiet story. Yeah. But is it, you know, I guess it's part of it's maybe players trying to extend their careers. It's overthinking yeah, things. Yeah, 100%. Um, right. But how much of that is just the mentality of the players? Do they just not love the game as much as they used to? It's a good question. It's a great, great it's just question. business to a lot of them sometimes, I guess, right? I think I'll, I'll say that I don't think it's a lack of the love. I think it's more of the business. That could be it too. Right. What's your right. point? The great art, and you hit it on the head. You're spot on net. The good players, they're doing this the way they rationalize it is justifiable. Listen, I want to save up for the playoffs. Listen, even back in the day, I want to say early mid nineties, uh, Popovich used to do that with David Robinson and Tim Duncan. Yeah. And stuff like that. You know, save a few bodies because you know you're going to go deep in the playoffs. And don't get me wrong, it's an 82 game season, right? And that's not a small number of games. And then the playoffs are what 20 something other games. Yeah, deep into the playoffs, you've hit the hundred mark. Yeah, you're going to get. I mean, even in college, we don't play a fraction of many games, right? But I can tell you, the first two or three years, I was with my head coach. And it was his first head coaching job. 
And the first two years, he would practice us as hard in October. I'm sorry, as hard in February as he did October. By right. late February, we had nothing left. It yeah, was, yeah. So I understand that part of it, right? But to your point, you wonder, I hope it's not because they don't appreciate and love the game as much. Uh, I hope it's more of a business thing. And if it is because of the right reasons, whether they want to be fresh for the playoffs and have some legs, then God bless them. You know, I just, yeah, I just yeah. hate the fact that I know there's some kid at the end of it. And Kobe Bryant used to talk about that. You know, that's why Kobe Bryant never, rarely never ever tried out. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, listen, this kid comes to see me. It may be the only chance he ever gets, you know. So yeah. Maybe it is a business thing. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you talked a bit about, you know, the um, how – how you guys, you know, it, it sort of relates to sales at, at your company now and how you use data and sales and things. And um, one of the things that I talk about a lot in the work that I do is, um, you know, performance management, right? And, you know, you talk about it in the, in the terms of athletics, but it's companies have performance metrics and things. Um, and you talk about sales, you know, because you're in sales, you yep. talk about sales metrics. Um and we, I get in discussions all the time about, well, what are the most important metrics for a business to to monitor, right? And the answer is always it depends, but sure. yeah. in a, you know, companies have a lot of the data is the same as far as sales is concerned, right? As far um, as the KPIs they keep you mean? Yeah, I mean, so you know, if if you were starting a new business, let's say I'm, you know, so I'm starting a new business, mm -hmm. what are the most important sales KPIs I should look out for? So in, in terms of now, it, to your point. It does have a relatable concept to, towards your business. Right? Yeah. If I'm on the basic surface, because I have an idea about the business that you're starting, I would suggest that if it were me, one of the, net, one of the things I would look at very first and foremost is how many meetings am I having in a week that could yeah. turn into potential opportunities? And of that, what's the conversion rate of those? And what mm -hmm. am I pouring? In, what's going into those? And how do I tweak those? So let me give you an example. When I get, I get called into companies when, let me give it this way. I don't get the call that usually says, hey, Rob, Things are going to go, things are going great. We're broke, breaking through the ceiling with numbers. We're going to IPO in two years. Why don't you come over? I never get that call. <laughs> I get the call like in the middle of the night, red button, red bat phone, kind of like, hey, we're, uh, we just got a whole boatload of capital, but that was 18 months ago. And now we were looking for our series B or C and sales team struggling. We flatlined on revenue, net new accounts are low and oh, and we're bleeding customers. That's a call I usually get, right? Yeah. Now, yeah. I'm a little bit masochistic because that's also the call I love getting because <laughs> I get to go in there and be the hero and the fixer. Yeah. But if you're like, just to go back to what you're saying, if I'm early in a business, there's four things I look at when I go into these businesses. And it's usually early on a B round. You can look at average ticket price, right? Mm -hmm. Your conversion rate, your booking rate, and then your cost of acquisition. If you can focus in, you've got really clear numbers on those things, average ticket price, conversion, booking and conversion rate, booking rate, and, um, and cost of acquisition. I can usually tell you with pretty, pretty good accuracy, what you need to pour on, where you need to tweak the dial, where you need to spend money to increase lead gen, to increase sales and things like that. Right, right. From a human standpoint, you just implement those onto the heads that you have and you yeah. break down into smaller metrics how to get to those. That makes sense. Right, right. So, but let's say, let's say you're in a company that, um, you know, all that stuff's kind of, you got those things established and you're just kind of doing the, the, the routine monitoring of company mm -hmm. metrics. Yeah. What metrics do you focus on uh, typically? Yeah, so it's a great question. So usually those four are big with me, okay. but then I usually carry, retention is huge with me. You have to keep on retention because yeah. there's two reasons, right? If you can't retain customers, you're, you're a slow dying ship anyway, you're a slow sinking ship. And yeah. retention, which usually should be, in, especially in the tech world, should be about mid nineties, right? And then net new business, net new revenue. Right. Know? It's one thing to get, if you, have the op, if you have the ability to get customers, great, half the problem is solved. But the real issue is that can you retain, can you hold on to those customers? Because the secret is, is that the best customer is always an existing customer. So right. give me all the metrics. The current company I work with is a biotech company, a diagnostic company, and Acutis. And what we do is we the work rate of my team has to be exceptionally high. And when I say work rate, I mean they're all remote. They're all out in the field. And this is a sale where they're face-to-face -face all day long, right? They work right. with providers. And your work rate has to be exceptionally high. Otherwise, you noticeably will fall behind very quickly. So right. give you an example. Each of them is responsible for a number of meetings, but also how many new providers they bring on a, a month. And of those new providers, how many are actually sending and using our services, right? So they're aggressive. They have to each bring on eight new accounts a month. And of those new accounts, four of them have to be already buying from us, already selling, mm -hmm. you know, already using our services, which is uber aggressive. So give you a, the metrics on it. You break that down day to day. Every one of my field rep reps now 
has a lunch booked every day. The best ones probably are booked out. This is December. They're booked out to February. Right. And on top of that, that, that meeting lunch, they've got to hit eight to eight to 10 cold call offices in person a day. Right. Right. Now, when you think about that, that's, that's not for a guy like me. You know, I'm not going to, I'm an older guy. I'm not doing that banging down those doors. That's for kids that are young, hungry, smart. That yeah. Kind of, yeah. Kind of Salesforce in the tech world. There's, there's metrics or net new meetings, net new business meetings. And then in those meetings, how good are you at really putting in and putting together a pipeline? Yeah. And the real hardcore part of sales is that, can you live and build a pipeline that's actually based in reality? Yeah. And how do you, how do you know if a metric is doing uh, good or bad? So, you know, you see a number, somebody gives you a, a yeah. number, it says, you know, Rob, our conversion rate is, you know, I don't know, 5%. I don't know if that's yeah. good or bad, right? They yeah. tell you it's 5%. How do you, how do, do you ever give those numbers context, you know, whether it's good or bad? I and do. do compare to? Yeah, I try to give them context. So usually I keep a really good finger on the pulse of what's industry standard, right? Okay. And then what you try to do is when you go into any environment, you take industry standard and you, you put a hedge on it, you know, to yeah. kind of to cushion yourself. But let me give you an example. So for um, retention, retention in the tech world needs to be around mid 90s, right? Okay. That's, that's industry standard. So when you get into a situation that's below 90%, you're already in trouble, right? right. And anything below than that, any implement, any good process you have, any good system you have can bump that up a little bit. You're going to yeah. want to put gas on that because like I said, if you can't hold on to the customers, the boat's already sinking. You know, you're plugging holes, that kind of thing. But when it also comes to that, like I said, I like, I always like to look at net new business mm -hmm. and I like to look at the activity level of my team. So for instance, mm -hmm. if my sales leaders are cranking out great deals and they're, they're, they're driving a lot of revenue, you may have a situation where they're not nearly as valuable as the one that's driving close to that amount of money, but that's bringing on twice as many customers. I'll give you an example. Right. The reason right. why I moneyball my sales force and I have about 20, 30 metrics that we look at, uh, the reason why I do that is because too many sales forces and too much, too much leadership in tech and business, they look at the guy who grosses the, the highest level of money, right? And right. that's fine. But you also need to take into account a, a very few key particular metrics that indicate whether or not that person is still valuable to you. So let me give you an right. example. So if you and I are working at a company together, I've been there five years, you've been there a year and a half. And at the end of the year, at the end of 2023, we both brought in about $5 million. Who's more valuable to that company? Right? I, I would say probably me because I did it, did it only a year and a half. That's exactly right. right. So what I, what, one of the things that I started paying attention to when we started moneyballing these sales forces that most leaders in sales do not do, of those metrics that we talk about, net new meetings, business meetings, follow, all this stuff, you have to keep in mind how long that salesperson, girl, men or women, has been with the company. Right, because that essentially is affecting your your, your bottom line through and yeah. through. The guy who brings in the same amount of money as the girl that's only been here two months—that's a that's a huge loss. Right, yeah. the company yeah. spending tons and tons of money. That's one big thing that I've implemented the last I want to say four companies I've gone. And it's funny I can tell you personally, Andy, at two of those companies were both very big tech companies. Once we moneyball the sales force, in both instances, the number one guy at the company ended up on the value chart being so far down that once they got word of this and they were exposed to this and what was exposed was that they really weren't doing the work they were getting handed these deals they soon right went. yeah, so they got yeah. Exposed and they leave. or there's one of two ways you can go you can leave or you can get better and say hey i've got some of the chops i've been rewarded handily before i had to prove myself what can i do to get better in a better space yeah. Yeah. and we work with them and we train with them to do that yeah at the end of the day you have to be metric based in a sense because it's like the old saying if you're not measuring it you can't manage it yeah right. yeah but and i guess that kind of ties back to what we were talking about with with the nba players you know sitting time out right they right. you know they have to have the enthusiasm to want to improve as well you know if you want to be a great salesperson you got to be willing to learn about learn how to be a great salesperson right nobody's right. born with it That's right. um, you know some people say they are but nobody's born with it you, you learn it somehow whether it's from your watching your parents you know uh buy a car or you know yeah. what, whatever it might be yeah have you ever read the book uh, way of the wolf Yes, I met him yeah. actually. It it um uh, it talks a lot about those same things, right? The cold yep. calls and yep. and a lot of that's about. Um, it's interesting to to read the book because it's not actually about. Uh, it's it's about building relationships and building yep. a rapport with the person and learning what should you say when to get the outcome you're looking for. Correct. Yeah. Um, which is you know kind of it, it's a lot of sales isn't approached that way, right? It's right. Um, you need to sort of. Uh, feel the person's pain and then uh, or let them express the pain 
Yeah. Uh, and then you propose a, a solution to solve it. You just ask them if they want help. If they don't want help, then so be it, right? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, you're spot on about a couple of things, but it's interesting the way you're saying it, not only is it spot on, but it's also, it's something that fortunately for me, a lot of sales leaders, a lot of sales companies don't have that, that ethos, that, that focal point. I've never, I've been in sales my entire career. And it's at least it's never been said to my face, or I don't think I've been thought of it. I'm not a hard sell. So if right. you don't have, if I can't make your life better, I give you something that helps provide value for you. I'm not interested, right? Yeah. And early on in my career, that was a struggle because I worked for very aggressive sales guys. At some point, that were like, "No, no, you got to get the sale." I'm like, "But they don't need us. Why the hell would I do that?" Because go yeah. back, go back to what I said earlier. Your best customer is an existing customer. I never want to sell or work with someone that I don't have the opportunity to help again down the line. Yeah. Now that said. Where I've been able, where I've been very fortunate, my background is psychology and business, right? And sports and everything else. I've always been obsessed with the human condition around motivation and why people are successful and things like that. And, and maybe it was a way of trying to figure out how I could do it myself. But the way that I was trained, I was trained by a guy named Dirk Gorman, who basically showed me, you're not just a salesperson, there's a craft to this, mm -hmm. right? And I like to say, you know, based on my years of training with him, and he also, when I was a manager for him, he brought in a couple of two IO psychologists. And I had a psych background, so I went college. I was in graduate school for psychology. And I was always fascinated by that. So I, I melded with these guys pretty quickly. But they did a, a heavy level of testing with us. And he came out with these six scores about personality. And anyway, the major part of it was empathy. And yeah. if you want to know what the best, if you ask me, what are the best key sales, the, the sales guys of today? What's the key element that they all have? It's understanding the value of empathy and, and vulnerability and versatility. Mm -hmm. The best salespeople I know are versatile. They're more versatile than anybody. But to, to your point, what you need to do is that you need to find out what's personally important to people, right? So when I train people, I usually get a little bit deeper than just, you got to make a call, you got to make a thousand cold calls. I teach people how to read body language, how to build trust on right. very short timelines. And this is all the, the, the kind of playbook that I've been using now for the last couple of years. And it's benefited us tremendously because my teams don't come off as the hard sell. They find out what are the pains really at. Now, keep in mind, there is something essential to that that you said earlier is that you need to find the pain that people are having because people buy because of pain. Now, granted, we all buy discretionary items you know, here and there. People buy expensive cars. But more often than not, when you purchase something of any sort, you're buying to solve a pain, to solve a problem. Right? Right. And if you can, through conversation, through the right questions and permission, find out what people's pains are, what the good salespeople, the best will, will show you, what I train on is that you need to find out that pain and bring it to the conscious level and make that person stay in the pain long enough to understand that the cost of staying in that pain is far more expensive than working with you or, or buying. Right, right. Right. And there's there's something that is very, very, very particular about that is that if you can't read empathy, if you can't read energy in the room, more often than not, a salesperson will find the pain and they go right into like, oh, this is why we're better. This is why we fix it. You can't do that. Because at your point, you're not going to build a relationship that way. Right? Yeah. So the, 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 real, the real sales leaders that I train, that, that I've learned the most from, they're the ones that have always taken the route of it's a craft and you have to understand how to read, how to understand people, see the world through their lens and understand the power of, of empathy. Otherwise, you're, you're, you know, you're a commodity. Yeah. Sense. Yeah. 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 And it's, the, you know, one of the ways that I've been talking to people and I put it on my website is uh, when I'm trying to, you know, get people to join my training uh, program yeah. is I want them to not need me anymore. So right. my goal is to make them so good that I, they're not a customer of yeah. mine anymore, right? And yeah, uh, and I feel like I've done my job, right? I've helped them right. get to the place they want in their career, get the skills they have, and then they don't need me anymore. That's perfect. Yeah. That's exactly what I want, right? Because yeah. then what's going to happen is hopefully they then refer somebody and say, right. "Hey, this worked for me," and you know that's that's the whole idea. But yeah. um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, it's uh, for for those of you that that um, we skipped kind of over the book a bit. Um, so the book's called Way of the Wolf. It's written by Jordan Belfort, and yep. you may not know the name off the top of your head, but you've probably seen the movie Wolf of Wall Street. Exactly. That's the guy. Yeah. Uh, that's Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, right. And you know, it's funny reading the book. That's in my head. I'm seeing Leonardo DiCaprio the whole thing, and of course, it's dramatized in the movie. But oh, sure. Uh, no, but, but really, I, really, yeah. I met him in person. He came and spoke to us years ago in the city. Uh, and he is really that much energy. Like he's that, yeah, he's yeah. that good. But it's yeah. also, keep in mind, you had said it earlier, is that if you can find, one of the things you mentioned that I, I, I find myself for the last few years now really emphasizing with people. When I go to hire people, when I recruit people, and usually at the level I'm at now, I'm fortunate where I've got people to do that and everything else. But when I hire people, even to this day, I say, listen, 
I, I focus on the process, you know, the actual skill set, right? If you're willing to work with us for a year, two years tops, I promise you, my, my promise to you is that you have such a process down that you can go to any company and sell any vertical, any product, and within a quarter or two, you should be in the top eight to 10% of their sales force. That's, that's how the process, it's product and company agnostic. Like yeah. most people out there that say, oh, I've been selling sell, I've been selling software for years and I can't do anything else or med. And if you look at my background, I've been using this playbook, but I've also, I'm one of those guys that was able to jump to medical, to pharmaceutical, to devices, to software, to all these things. Yeah, right. <laughs> the process is the same. Now, the yeah. funny thing is that when you really understand how to empathize with people and, and build something of value, it doesn't become that chic, like, uh, oh, this is the slick salesman stuff, right? Right. Because the situation you and I were talking about when you were telling me about your business, when you meet someone for the first time, whether it be in person, on video, uh, when you shake their hand, you say hello. Mm -hmm. There's a level of relationship tension that is at its height. It's at its peak because you don't know this person. Right? right. And as you're talking to someone, as you get to know them, it could be in a conversation or a period of time, that relationship tension starts to sag. Right? Mm. It goes up and down and stuff like that. Well, when you're in an engagement in sales, for instance, it's the same thing. That relationship tension is up through the ceiling. Right. Because at the end of the day, they have, you have something that they want and vice versa. Now, when you're in a conversation with someone, it goes down. And when the first time they say no to anything, it spikes back up. Yeah. And the best salespeople or the people that really know how to really work with customers, they not only recognize that, but they understand how to work with it. Where salespeople that don't, the second they get a no, you see this all the time in deals, for instance, right? You see all the time in deals where the person pushes back on the price or something and the salesperson panics. And what right. do they say? You know what? I got to get my boss. You know what? We can discount you 25%. Would that help? Then the, right. you've already lost the trust of the customer because they know that that number that you were charging them is complete mirage. Yeah. Right? Whereas if you say to them, I hear what you're saying, but let me ask you something. Is there something else that I'm missing? You know, you really play the empathetic role because the relationship tension is going to be high. Yeah. If you address that and handle that, you can slowly mitigate that. And then once that's lower, you always have that opportunity to say, hey, this is where, that's when it becomes clear path to work with each other, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that you see that in your business too, is that the tough part about, the, the interesting thing about what you're doing is that when you're meeting people for the first time, communication is very different, right? So I train people, there's three levels of communication. It's words, tone, and body language, right? And the percentages of such are, if you read Chris Voss's book, um, Never Split the Difference. This is FBI data. This isn't Robert Gibbons data. In order of importance or order of level of communication, it's 7% words, 38% body language, 38% uh, tone, and 55% body language. Now, when we're talking about what you and I were talking about earlier, when you're selling over chat or selling over email and such, you don't have the biggest component that you can read, that body mm -hmm. language. Not there. Yeah. It's also why people struggle selling over Zoom because you're not in there. You can't feel that energy. Mm -hmm. So what becomes critically important that we have to train people on all the time is tonality, right? So think about where we are, Andy, in our careers. Think about if I was going before a giant sales force. So I get bought in. I get a nice fat check to speak to the entire sales force. Think about if I stood before them and said, I'm here to teach you about tonality. <laughs> you know what I mean? You'd have crickets and people would boo you off stage. You know that? Yeah. Like, yeah. But the truth is, is that you have to focus on those components if you don't. If you're not understanding body language, if you're not understanding how to mitigate getting a no or anything like that, or realize the value in knowing that real negotiations, they don't start until you get a no, mm -hmm. which is back. Because anybody yeah. can yes to the death. But when you're able to teach people how to read that and not run from it, that's where the, the magic sauce is, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's the people that work for me or the people I've seen in the industry that do the best. They see through. They see the world through the lens of the person, not just yeah. themselves. Yeah. You know? And it's usually good customers or even customers They've spotted 70% of what they need to know about a deal before they even go to the deal, mm -hmm. like technology and everything else. So yeah. it's our job to basically build that alliance, build that relationship. And can we do something where we can form a partnership down the line? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it, a good salesperson that has a good process can sell anything, right? That's that's yeah. that's part of it. Yeah. Um, before this, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about um, uh, Shoe Dog, Phil, Phil Knight's book and, right. and the struggles he went through and, <laughs> excuse me, and how, he just had a product he believed in. That's he right. believed in himself. Actually, he didn't really believe in himself that much at the beginning, yeah. but he believed in what he was doing, the change right. he was, the disruption he wanted to make. That's right. But the biggest thing that, you know, one of the biggest things I've taken out of that book is you have to be really passionate about what you're selling to people. Um, yes. And you have just incredible belief, but that that's a bit contrary or maybe not contrary. I'm I don't, not quite sure what the, what the word is because if you're good at selling something, you could sell anything, mm -hmm. but how important in the sales, in that sales process is 
utter belief in what you're selling. It's it's critically important. I would say it's critically important because I will say this, go back to what we're talking about with the way people are working and um, doing so much research on their own or stuff like that. I don't know about you. I think we're both in this category though, but I can spot when somebody's not really invested or really confident in what they're selling, right? So to talk about Bill Knight, he had an utter belief the fact that what he was doing was going to better the world, right? He was yeah. going to make a, he was going to bring these running shoes to the world that, you know, people around the world were making for fractions of the pennies, but he wanted access to have them. If you go to that book, you remember that it was his, his old track coach used to sit in his home lab and design the, the bottom yeah. threads of the shoe. And they're always, right, they're, that's right. They're always looking how it would be more comfortable and more aerodynamic. It was lighter on their feet. They're always looking to better the customer. And if you look at our best entrepreneurs of this day, they're taking on these massive problems that they feel like they can have a contribution to change it, to making it better. Mm. Salespeople in our world, if they don't believe in their gut, what they're doing is going to benefit the people that they're working with. It's it's palpable. You can tell yeah. right away. And yeah. personally, I make sure that we weed those people out because what does exist in those people is a level of toxicity to the rest of your culture. Right. And right. then you get back into the point where the greatest, the fastest way to lose great people is to tolerate a bad one. Right. You, know, you, you really got to open up to the fact that just because they bring in the most money or they're your number one salesperson on paper, how are they for your culture? How are they for your people? Because yeah. those are the people that, they may be earning a ton of money, but if they're toxic, they don't believe in the company. They don't right. believe in the product. Yeah. Because good buyers will feel that. They'll right. feel that energy and be like, well, why would I work with this if this kid doesn't believe? You know? Yeah. So how, how does that then, um, how does how does that translate into the interview process and when, when you're recruiting people? Mm -hmm. How do you how do you tease that? Because they're new to the company. Like, how can they possibly have that level of passion for the product? Yep. How do you how do you kind of how do you tease that out of them to see well is this person you know capable of that or or whatever it might be like I've never hired a salesperson so I don't know the answer to that but I know how to find in the work that I do yep. I know how to find if somebody's passionate but right. not in the world of sales and uh, so how do you tease that out in an interview You don't <clears throat> Okay that, well you don't in the sense that you usually do. No. no 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 it's actually it's actually a great question because this is the thing that I speak to people all the time. I think I have a process that works and then suddenly it doesn't. And it's always, there's always a probability of the person we hired is not the person we're going to get that kind of thing. Right. Right. What you learn early on and what I, I was able to pick up is that I can't expect people to have that level of enthusiasm and passion about the company that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hire them for yet. Right. They right. haven't, they haven't earned that yet. What I try to look at when I'm hiring people, right. And maybe this is because I'm older and maybe I'm a little bit lazy, whatever job I'm trying to hire people for, right? Whether it's sales, customer success, retention, I'm trying to find the people that have done what I need them to do already at mm -hmm. a pretty high level that somewhat early in their career that I think I'm already looking for good that I can make great. Right. right. When it comes to salespeople, what I'm looking at is a track record of success. So I look at resumes, probably I read from the bottom up and I read in like two, five seconds. Right. And what I'm looking for is just a track record of success. But more often than not with salespeople, you ask them, Hey, how did you get to this spot? What'd you do to learn this? How'd you get to be this good? It's the story that's the outside of what they actually sold. So don't right. get me wrong. You and I are still from the day where you remember box scores in the paper. Yeah. Right? So a good sales rep, if you're looking at a high ticket company, high high velocity, a good sales rep resume should read like a box score. It should be one line about who I was and where I was. And then the rest of it should be winning stats, numbers, president's club, that kind of thing. But then you look past that to see, okay, what's this person's work rate? So if they don't work for us, they work for anybody. Are they the person we got to worry about getting out of bed or are they doers? Because more often than not, you don't have to, doers don't need the job, right? You can convince them to join you because it's a picture of a better vision of what they're doing, but doers are already doing something other than what you need them to do. That's already got them to where they are. If that makes sense. I don't want to confuse mm -hmm. you. You already got, they're, they're the ones that are looking at you, looking at you in the interview and they're not so much nervous as much as they are. Hey, I'd be great for you. That kind of thing. They know they can add to the pie. And when you find those people, that's when you really link up and that's when you build a partnership because listen, I want you to make as much money as you can. I want, I want to bring about the best version of you to this company. What do I need? What do I need? What do you need from me to help you do that? Right. Yeah. And once you do that, you kind of reverse engineer, then you build backwards, but you have to have a foundation that is already there that speaks to the, where they're going to go after it, no matter whether you're involved in it or not, if that helps. Yeah, no, that, that, that's great. Yeah. It's how how much then does your your sales process that you talked about where you're trying to feel the uh 
you know, the, the pain in the individual and how can you help solve it? Do you look for them trying to sell you that way to hire them? Does anybody, does anybody ever, when you interview somebody, does anybody ever treat you like they're trying to sell you? Of course, of course, because okay. the good ones, the good ones won't let you leave the room until they have a very good idea or a confirmation that you think they're good enough for the role or that you're going to uh, push them to the next level. Right, right. Right. So I'll give you an example. I've hired hardcore sales guys in like the Bronx or Brooklyn, where this was years ago when I first started hiring people. And one of the tactics that I was trained on was to, you know, halfway, halfway, three quarter through the interview, you know, look at the resume and look at the candidate and tell them that you're just not hearing superstar. You're not hearing success. And I said to this one gentleman, I'll never forget this. I said, you know what? The resume looks good. And, uh, and I like what I'm hearing, but you read, you read the job post, right? The job rec. And, oh yeah. I said, it said, we're looking for rock stars. Right. It clearly says that. The guy says, yeah. And I said, you know what? I'm reading this and I'm listening to you. I just don't know if I hear rock star. And there was a pause. And the guy looked me right in the eye and says, well, maybe you're deaf. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And, and he used an expletive before that. But, you know, for the show, I won't use that. But yeah. yeah. And I just remember sitting back and be like, wow, this guy's good. But I hired him anyway. And yeah. he ended up being he ended up being excellent because yeah, yeah. he was already a driver. He was already a doer. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's going to be a success, whether it worked for me or for anybody else. Right. Yeah. So early on, you have to have they have to have that level of bravado. They have to have that level of self-confidence that's going to make sure that they're going to be great no matter where they go. So that said, the way I close that out is that the best salespeople, even the ones that are really good, they're not letting you leave the room until you give them some kind of confirmation that you're going to move them on or that they wouldn't be great with your company. Mm -hmm. and, and I even now I'll say to my team when they hire people, if there's if it's a last hire and they're on the fence, I'm already questioning it because I train them how to look at these intangibles. But also when I, when I meet with someone, even at the level that I'm at, they say, is there any reason why I wouldn't be a great fit for your company or something like that? That's putting yourself out there. Yeah. Right? Honestly, people say, yeah, it may not work because of this. But usually it's like, yeah, no, I think you would be because they have that level of confidence in what they're doing. And don't get me wrong. They can speak to what they've done along the way where you know it's going to benefit the both of you. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I'm thinking back to, you just mentioned the question you asked that, you know, you're looking for rock stars and you don't see that. I wish I knew that question. I've, I've interviewed thousands of people yeah. for, for the, the company I used to help run. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them are relatively new in their career. Most of them are relatively new in their careers, yeah. but what would be really interesting is to ask them that question. I'm going to pass that on to, to the yeah. guy that runs recruiting there. And no, to see to, how do they how do they handle themselves because you're going to really fluster them, right? You have to. That that's exactly yeah. what you have to do. Because think about it. Nowadays, with ChatGPT, with internet, with everything, they can rehearse the best interview questions ever. What you need to do, and this is where the psych part comes in. It's great. You need to throw them off script. Yeah. And the faster you can do that, yeah. uh, the better you're going to see what you have. I'll give you an example. I used to walk in when I was uh, I was a mid manager at this company years ago, and I was one of the hiring managers. And the first thing I used to do is I used to make sure that with I had them structured to where they were sitting here, they were sitting, you know, all, I used to structure the temperature of the room, all this crazy stuff, right? And the first thing I would do is when I walked in, I would deliberately make sure that I was a few minutes late. And then I would also make sure that the candidate had a copy of their resume and I had a copy of their resume. And the first thing I used to do when I got in there is crumple it up and throw it on the floor and see how they responded. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right away, you're setting a tone. I'll tell you what's another great question uh, that I, I, I ask in a lot of interviews nowadays too. I said, listen, if you don't mind me asking you something, and you can answer, from a personal standpoint, professional standpoint, it's completely up to you. I said, was the last time you really devastated in your life or your business? And what'd you do right after? Mm -hmm. And you want to talk about great stories and, and seeing the humanity in people. That's where you really hear some amazing tales of what people have gone through. And not to be you know, macabre or anything, but I want to know that someone understands the value of the struggle, right? So I want that person to tell me, you know what? Uh, I came from a single family house and my mother didn't have much and I had to put myself through school. It used to be HR didn't like it when I did this. HR didn't like how, when I used to ask young kids, hey, how'd you pay for school? <laughs> HR would be like, dude, you can't say that. And I'd be like, oh, okay. But I used to like asking that because that's part of a story. If they're younger people, yeah. that's probably something that they've had to face at a young age that they came to a precipice like, okay, I can either go this way and someone writes a check for me or yeah. I can put my head together and figure out a way to do it. And then you're starting to see the character traits of somebody, right? Mm -hmm. How do they handle things when they're not that hand, they're not that fancy or they're not that um, handed to them on a silver platter? That's what you have to find out. But the question I asked though about, you know, when was the last time you were devastated? You get some really deep answers. And then mm -hmm. you see why people are, you get, the, you get an idea of the person you're dealing with. Another thing yeah. is I used to ask people, uh, like when I was interviewing gentlemen, when I was interviewing guys, 
I say, you ever been the best man in anyone's wedding? They're just simple questions like that. Yeah. If I, of all your friends, aside from your family, who trusts you the most? Why is that? And what they're doing is they're trying to explain themselves to you through the lens of someone else. Right. And you get to see where their ego is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I used to. Go One ahead. of the things I used to do, so we we always ask people to give a demo, um, yeah. give them a project to work on. They'd have to do a demo, and yep. I would always interrupt. Yeah, because uh, then you you really throw off the people that have yeah. rehearsed too much. Exactly, um, and yeah. I would you know because honestly, I never cared what they actually demoed. Yeah, I cared yeah. I cared about how they carried themselves, but then also you know how are they going to handle an interruption? Because it's going to happen when they're doing consulting, they're That's going right. to get interrupted. And if they can't handle it in a safe setting like this, then you're not gonna, how right. heck are they going to do it when they're with a customer? It's you know? so funny you say that. I'll give you a little bit of background. I used to do the exact same thing and it got out that I would do that. And what I would do is whenever I asked them, I would roll them the marker and I'd say, hey, do this. It was something that had pre-rehearsed. -re -pre so what I used to do is I used to go through the interview and things I picked up kind of nuances along the way and conversation I would, I would roll in the marker and ask them to walk through that. I'll give you a great story about this. So I had a guy, uh, I was at Acutus at the time. No, I was at Ipswich at the time. And it was a large, large sales force, predominantly in-house. And we had BDRs, business development reps. These kids, we could train the hell out of them, they used to bang the phones all day, right? And I got asked to take an interview with a friend of a friend, this one gentleman, and his name was Jordan, all right? And I remember uh, seeing him, he looked through the window and other people were talking to him, he looked very, very nervous. And I went in there and he couldn't look me in the eye at all. And he had a suit and tie on. He had everything rehearsed perfectly. But through the car, I literally couldn't get this kid to look at me. And finally, I said to him, I started talking to him like off the cuff. I pushed the resume away. I said, Jordan, tell me about yourself. And he started saying about his family and stuff like that. And um, he told me how he, he put himself through school by working at Home Depot. I said, Jordan, that, this is interesting. You, you're telling me that you put yourself through school, but you only worked in Home Depot a couple of years. I said, I said, not for nothing. I don't care. But what's the rumpus here? What's going on? And he got really quiet. And he put his hands on the table. And I, and I noticed earlier the way he had ripped off numbers. I'm like, okay, this kid's got, there's something on the left side of this kid's brain. And he looked at me, finally looked me in the eye. He said, I'm really good with numbers. I said, really? I said, well, so what are you doing? He says, I day trade for my house. I've been doing it since my sophomore year of high school. And had, had issues with social stuff, but completely, you know, savant. I rolled on the marker and I said, walk me through how you invest in the stock. And for the next 10 minutes, this kid gave me a, a, a tutorial on it, which I got smarter. I hired him on the spot. Yeah. And he ended up being arguably one of the best BDRs I've ever hired wow. at any company. Oh yeah, because once I gave him the playbook and he understood it and he and he tailored it to him, he made he booked more meetings than anybody. Right. So That's it's funny. finding that thing in people that they're they're fired up about that they've had to overcome. Yeah. Right. If you can do that in an interview, you're working with fire because you're working with good fire because the best people you hire, Andy, they're gonna teach you stuff. Yeah. Right. I'm not I'm long past the guy that wants to dictate overwhelm and and Dominate the people that work for me. That that, that doesn't that doesn't work anymore. <laughs> Hire the people that are going to tell you that this is what you need to know. This is why I'm as good as I am, and they're going to teach you more about how to be better at what they do. That yeah, yeah. All right, I, I gotta I gotta wrap it up here in a second. Yep. But a um, couple a couple of questions uh, back back to basketball. We got We got to start and end with basketball. So yep. you played in you played professionally in Europe, right? Correct. Yeah, overseas. Um, if you could change one thing about your basketball career. Yep. To uh, have you played professionally in the NBA? Okay. What would you do? Uh, I would just do more of the things that I figured out were much more valuable uh, when I played overseas. So when I played overseas, my later years of college, I got very good at defense. Okay. I was, I was always a great passer, but I learned how to play defense from a phenomenal head coach and a guy named Kevin Stallings. And when I went over the pros, I tried to score. I tried to do this, this, and then when I realized I got in a situation where I was playing with Magic Johnson. And I got put into a role where they already had a big center. He was like seven foot two. They had all these other guys. They needed me to come in and be a great post defender and a great uh, rebounder and such. And I said to myself, you know what? I'm just going to try and stop doing all these other things. Just focus on that. Mm -hmm. And it ended up working. And I ended up having a career of doing that. And it got to be known as this guy that could be, that could guard any big man on the floor kind of thing. Yeah. I probably would have focused on that more. Right. right. And, and, my and also truth is I played three sports, four sports a year up until my sophomore year of college. Having the career I had and growing as fast as I did, I probably would have played more basketball, even though I played. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's Dennis Rodman made a career of that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Dennis Rodman, I, that's another guy, arguably one of the most underrated work ethics you've ever seen in the NBA. Yeah. Hands yeah. down. So keep Absolutely. in mind, I got really lucky. If you've seen the last dance, I got really lucky because their last run when they brought him on the team, 
That's when I was in college, right down the road. I went to Illinois State, and they were in Chicago. One of our managers started work with them when he came on board, and their whole job was just to make sure that he stays out of trouble. And that guy, <laughs> after even the biggest home games, used to go in the locker room after they would do the talk with Phil Jackson, go in the locker room, say hi to his teammates, whatever. He would take a Pearl Jam CD and go in the weight room. He'd lift weights for about another hour, hour and a half. Then he'd go on the treadmill for another 45, 50 minutes. Then he'd go take a shower. Car was waiting out back, and he'd go right to the club. Yeah, That's how I got – he just outworked everyone. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can tell when he was on the floor, he never ran out of energy. By the way, you know who else was like that that I, I was fortunate enough to bump into and meet and watched him work out was Kobe Bryant. Yeah. The work ethic in that guy was just the most understated thing. And don't get me wrong, he's blessed with talent, but people don't realize how much of it is actually work ethic yeah. and discipline. Yeah. The talent is one thing, but to watch that guy work out after practice, you know, for another two hours, it was just, I'm like, oh, okay. Now, now you understand why it makes sense that they're as good as they are, too. All right, last question. And you have to take you have to you have to take a stand on this one. Okay. Kobe or Michael? Michael, all day long. Why? No, there's, there's no doubt. Well, for for starters, you look at the number of There'd actors. Be no Kobe if there wasn't a Michael, I guess. That's that's one Wait, reason. Sorry, sorry, you said Michael or Kobe? <laughs> yeah. I'd say I'd say Michael, only because I just thought Michael had I thought Michael had what he came from and what he was able to do was a little bit different than Kobe, right? Yeah. And I thought Kobe had a better supporting cast, which I'm not trying to take away from Kobe. The better question is what I get more often than not is LeBron or Michael. Right. And I still, I still say the same thing. Yeah. I, yeah. I say Jordan all day long. All yeah. day. Because keep in mind, right? Kobe, too, you know, Mike Mike went to six finals, won every one of them. Yeah. Right? Multiple defender players of your scoring titles, your MVPs. I mean, it's just like the all around game. Yeah. He, was, he was just ferocious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. Robert, thanks for thanks for joining me. I love this conversation. It's probably, yes, been, my, it's probably been my my most fun uh uh, podcast recording so far, but don't tell the okay. other people that have been on the podcast before. So that's because right. we, got to, we, we got to talk sports. So that's right. Uh, yeah, always, that's, always hit me I, up. I on love that. sports. You know, I, I kind of have to be as an American, right? And I have to that's love right. sports. Yeah. Right. <laughs> now, you're, now you're into a different sport over there because it's all football. And, uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. And um, yeah, so much. I will chat with you soon. Definitely. Thank you so much. It was great.